Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. What should we be expecting in the ESG landscape for investment during 2022? To answer that question, I've invited Anuj Shah onto the program today. I can't think of anyone more qualified to discuss the top ESG trends for 2022. Shah is partner and head of U.S. ESG Strategy Advisory with Close Group Consulting. And since 2017, he's partnered in the design of ESG integration mandates worth $1.7 trillion for asset managers and owners across the public and the private markets. We're going to be talking about their recently published ESG Trends Report. Hello, Anuj, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Hi, Paul. It's great to be with you, and uh, thank you for that generous uh, and kind introduction. Yes, well, I'm excited about our program today. Close Group Consulting recently published The List, your top 10 ESG trends for 2022. It includes perspectives on ESG ratings, strategy, and maturity, as well as other topics integral to the continued growth of ESG investment integration. So Anuj, uh, in what time frame do you see trend number eight, which is ESG investing just becomes investing, manifesting throughout the asset management industry? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, and you know, this is an exercise um, in terms of publishing a top 10 trends list that I've done in the past. And um, we did it again this year um, with my partner, Tamara Close. And number eight on our list is an item that we've called, or the title is DSG Investing Just Becomes Investing. And, and really what we mean by that is historically, there have been a number of categories around ESG investing. So ESG investing is not necessarily just a binary strategy, meaning it's something that you do or you don't do. Um, there are thematic, there's negative exclusion, there's positive exclusion. Um, typically, you know, sort of going back in time, there are ESG strategies or strategies that we now encompass as part of ESG, sustainable, responsible investing, SRI, Etc. So what we're trying to get to in this trend is that now that we see more widespread acceptance of ESG, ESG has certainly gone mainstream in the investment community, applying ESG factors into investment decision makings is becoming table stakes across asset classes, both public and private markets. And so what we see happening, and certainly this is you know more of an evolution than something that will likely happen just in 2022, it will take time, mm -hmm. but we're starting to see this happen, is that some of those categories will start to disappear. Um, defining yourself as a positive exclusion or a negative exclusion or an SRI strategy essentially requires a bit more of thought and articulation of what you're doing rather than saying we apply ESG factors into our investment decision-making process, into our investment monitoring, and even in, during investment exit, and then describing exactly what those are. And then investors or LPs have access to that information and they can make a decision whether to allocate capital with that asset manager or not. So we see some of those categories, if you think about ESG investing on a spectrum, 
spectrum um, mm. from left to right. Um, some of the categories on the left-hand side starting to disappear, some of those distinctions. And what you are moving towards more on the right-hand side of the spectrum is certainly on a more innovative side, how is ESG driving outcomes? Um, and so that's really what we're getting at here. But to summarize, not something that we expect fully to transpire in 2022, but we start to see people are moving, investors are moving on that ESG implementation maturity curve from the left to the right. Yes, I agree, completely agree with you. That spectrum is developing, and I, and I, I think you're right on with the timing for the for for this particular uh, focus. And in fact, uh, I work with a lot of financial advisors, and we're all hoping that it happens uh, to, tomorrow because it would be easy, it would be helpful to the advisory part of the industry to uh, reduce the overall monikers and the language and all of that kind of stuff and, and shrink the vocabulary to a point where it can be more directly focused on, on client uh, issues and, and desires. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I mean, my background, my professional background is also um, from a wealth management space. I've spent many years working in private wealth management at Morgan Stanley. And what I saw when I left that role, this is four years ago now, um, so even going back in time, was that there wasn't a reluctance from the private wealth advisor standpoint to understand ESG or impact investing because their clients were certainly interested in it and they would love to fill their mm -hmm. gaps. They're there to service the needs of their clients. But the lexicon around sustainable investing is unique and it requires an education. And there are lots of acronyms, as all of us uh, that are active in the ESG space knows. There are frameworks that are outside, there are disclosures, there's concepts, there's academic concepts, and it's, it's, it's an area of study. Um, and so what we saw was private wealth advisors interested. Some of them had clients that um, you know, certainly weren't pushing them on this, but we didn't see sort of the next generation of private wealth advisors really get into this because their clients were more interested in this. So it's an interesting, um, it's interesting to look at sort of the generational um, divide here, but it's, it's, it's happening. And so I agree with you, Paul, you know, the, 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 the less categories we have, the better, but um, you know, there are, there's more data, there are more tools, there certainly is more awareness, um, there's more ESG integration and that all facilitates this. Yes, and of course, as you mentioned, it's also happened in, in academia, and we've got a whole new generation of people training to move into this space within financial services. So we'll come back to that a little in a little bit, but uh, in trend number five, you focus on the linear connection of ESG across the full financing life cycle of a firm from venture capital to IPO. And that integration of ESG into the business model of a firm will become a core component of any valuation process in 2022. So if you could explain that concept in a little more detail for our audience, I'd appreciate it. Sure. So this is one that is directly born from the experience that we have at Close Group Consulting. And 
I do want to call out that we are fortunate enough to work with clients that are obviously highly motivated to become more mature with ESG. As ESG advisors, that's essentially a given um, when it comes to any prospective client that even is inquiring about our services. They're, they're there, right? They've made the decision uh, that they need external help to advance ESG goals. So that is you know, one explicit recognition that I should, should bring up. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it is, uh, you know, the, view, the visibility we have um, is, a, is an indication of the broader market. But um, that being said, we have um, had that fortunate opportunity to work with a number of VC firms um, over the course of the last year and their portfolio companies. And what we have seen is a greater recognition within the VC community. So these are startup companies, right? Very early stage mm. uh, that they should recognize what their material ESG issues are and to the extent possible, start to track, measure, and report on those issues. Um, and some firms are able to do that because they are more mature enough or, or are more mature and have the resources to track. Others, it's a, an awareness for the founders of what material ESG issues are and when they are able, start tracking. Um, and for others, it's essentially taking a list of material ESG issues and narrowing that down to three or four, the handful that they can actually focus on as a business in that early stage. So on the startup side of things, that's what we're seeing in the VC community and the VCs themselves are pushing their portfolio companies to do this work. There are also a number of organizations, um, VC-led, uh, that are putting together sustainability frameworks or ESG materiality frameworks and giving those to VCs and having the VCs distribute those to their portfolio companies. So that's something that frankly is, was new in 2021. We had not seen that previously. So there's a lot of momentum there. Now, when you move along the maturity curve of an organization, there are a number of factors that come in that actually become also pressure points for disclosing more ESG information. Um, in subsequent raises of capital for an early stage firm that's maturing, investor expectations have increased. So they would like to see an understanding of material ESG issues by a portfolio company, management overseeing those issues, and not just from a risk mitigation standpoint, but also from the perspective of we can potentially create value for the organization with a with a more distinct and robust ESG orientation for our organization. But it also matters to investors. So if you're reporting and disclosing that information, you're likely attracting ESG-focused investors, which could potentially lower your cost of capital. Mm -hmm. So that's an important driver um, for firms that are maturing. We have also seen and heard and, and even worked with investment banks that are looking at ESG from a pre-IPO perspective. So again, the motivation is essentially the same, which is investors are demanding access to this information. So prior to taking a, a firm public, we want to make sure that the organization understands what the material ESG issues are, tracks, reports, discloses those issues. We've heard and, and haven't, you know, unfortunately, from a COVID perspective, haven't been able to attend, um, but have heard of ESG-focused investor days, um, you know, carving out time on roadshows to 
talk and discuss ESG issues pre-IPO. Um, the same is happening in the M&A market. It's essentially the same concept, but if one firm is acquiring another firm, understanding their ESG positioning. Uh, and we're seeing this, of course, in the private markets as well. So that is what has informed this trend number five, which is seeing ESG across the full life cycle, life cycle of a firm from, from VC to IPO and, and even beyond. Um, and we think that is a, is a positive development for the marketplace. What's next, um, Paul? could be um, you know, something that I think has just been discussed certainly amongst the academic community and ESG, something that um, we are aware of at, at Close Group Consulting, which is how does that then impact valuation models for, mm. for firms um, when you have this additional data? You know, perhaps valuation models, and I'm sure you know, valuation models are ne not necessarily static, and there are analysts and smart people that are constantly updating their valuation models because of new data and data that's available to them. But introducing ESG data and what that means for valuation and, and a sustainability orientation for an organization, we think is quite intriguing. And we think that you will see, um, it's playing out in the marketplace, but you know, certainly from a fundraising perspective, VC pre-IPO, that firms that have a, a stronger ESG performance, it's, it's actually helping their valuation. They, they, they're valued higher. Um, so how does that you know, change your valuation model and what are the inputs into you know, a valuation for an organization? And we think we'll see and hear, read more about that uh, in 2022. That will, that's a perfect transition into the next topic that we want to discuss. And that's from trend number 10 this year. And we've already touched base on this, and that this is the idea or the concept that asset owners are a significant driver uh, or a catalyst for change in the industry. Uh, and part of what we're doing in ESG modeling and um, uh, analytics is going deeper into uh, engagement with companies, as you know, and how will deeper regulatory engagement with companies empower asset owners even more in 2022 to keep digging deeper? And again, a great question. Um, so on the asset owner side, we don't necessarily see regulatory engagement as a primary driver of asset owners' embrace of, of ESG. Mm -hmm. It is certainly one pressure point. Again, from our experience working with asset owner clients, we see that there is a greater recognition that, number one, they are long-term patient capital type investors and mm -hmm. that ESG climate as essentially a subset of ESG, but you know, also a systemic risk that is essentially at this point sort of being carved out into its own category, um, is something that large asset owners, universal owners of capital have to consider. It impacts their investments. It is a risk um, to their investments and certainly in the time horizon that they are investing. And if they're investing with external managers, they want to know that those external managers have the capabilities to assess that risk in the asset classes that they're investing in, that they are looking at ESG data and have models, risk models, 
that are incorporating that ESG data into the risk model and in obviously informing their investment process. So asset owners understand that now, and certainly there are obviously asset owners that are managing assets in-house, and that's something for internal managers to look at and a capability for them to ensure that they have as well. But they understand that they are highly influential in this in the investment space, practically because they come they um, manage large sums of capital, very large sums of capital. And that responsibility sort of lies to them. They have influence on the marketplace. So we've worked with asset owners where we are revamping their third-party manager ESG due diligence framework, maturing the questions that they're asking, advancing the questions that they're asking, creating a scoring framework so they have comparability between managers. So again, some of it is the regulatory environment but the regulatory environment is essentially making more ESG data available to investors. So if corporates are disclosing, ESG starts with corporate disclosures. So corporates are disclosing more ESG information. The regulatory environment is supporting that. It's helping them disclose information in a standardized way that can be compared from one firm to another firm. Investors are downstream for them at that uh, information and they're incorporating those that ESG information into their investment process. Asset owners now know that ESG data is more widely available and they have greater expectations for internal and external asset managers to incorporate that information. So yes, the regulatory environment certainly has an influence on this. It's one pressure point, but we also see the recognition from asset owners themselves that they have a responsibility here um, and that they can, and that responsibility is not sort of, you know, to push a sustainability agenda it really is to manage risk, um, and so that that again is is uh, 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 you know informed the the number ten trend that um, you've brought up here. Okay, all right. Now this next um, uh, topic is one that's uh, near and dear to impact investors uh, over many years. Uh, in both developed and developing economies, impact investors have been waiting for trend number six to manifest for a long time. And that's the trend about who's winning the race to advance ESG maturity. You've touched on that briefly uh, already today, Anuj, but you also believe that it will be the private markets that take the lead on ESG maturity. And if you could give us some information or some background on that, as well as why 2022 is a pivotal year for this trend. One of the constant refrains I'd say about ESG, and, and I know you, you asked about impact investors, so I'll, I'll come back. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's fair to say that there's been a conflation um, you know, recently between ESG investing and impact investing. And I think maybe some pros and cons to that, at least for impact investors. Um, on the con side, sort of, conf- it's it's not the same thing. Um, you know, impact is certainly more focused on outcomes, and and what we say is ESG is essentially an input into an organization, a measurement of of of, of some level of the input into an organization. So they are distinct. But on the ESG side, there has been a lot of criticism of ESG ratings uh, and the lack of consistency between 
uh, one firm's ESG rating on the same, you know, one data provider's uh, ESG rating on the same firm versus another's. Uh, there's a lot of disparity. From a private investor standpoint, private investors have always been comfortable with essentially a not as much information, not as much information about a company as is disclosed in the private and the public markets. Um, and that you know, that understanding and, and that comfort with the discomfort mm-hmm. is something that we see private markets and private markets investors easy. It's essentially easy for them to overcome. Um, they are not too concerned about the disparity of ESG ratings. They don't have ESG ratings for private companies. Um, they are comfortable with the lack of consistency. This is the operating environment uh, that they have been living in for years and years. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is this debate that we see on the public markets of this consistent lack of consistency of ESG ratings. It's just not something that the private mark, private markets investors get into. And so we do see private markets investors, both on the credit and the equity side of things, um, on the debt and equity side of things, moving forward. Um, they are not stuck on this at all. They are working to get more disclosures from private companies. They have influence, right? They have um, perhaps even more influence than a public markets investor um, mm. on a company to make these changes. Private equity, they're long-term strategic partners. They put themselves on the board of these private companies. They have a lot of influence. Um, private credit, private debt are working with GP sponsors to lend capital to the companies that um, private equity have, have invested in. So they all work together on this information. And again, we've been fortunate enough to work with a number of of clients on the private investment side, particularly on the private credit side, where we see them doing a lot more. So whether it's creating um, materiality, ESG materiality frameworks for a particular industry or ESG proprietary internal ESG scoring frameworks, they're moving forward. Um, And we think that that is a um, it's a significant trend and will have a significant influence on the marketplace because private markets investors are, are moving forward. Okay, good. Well, Anoush, we have time for one more uh, question here. And this one's about the, the design of an ESG integration mandate. What's your experience over many years now of where that begins within a company's business model and how does it develop over time? Yeah, so on the, on the corporate side of things, we have seen, we, we're starting to see a change. So for the most part, what we have seen from ESG disclosures is the expectations of reporting ESG information has essentially informed disclosures and the actual reporting at a company. Hmm. And so you have this external pressure to disclose ESG information. And most companies have been reactive to that. And, you know, there are something like 80% or so of the S&P 500 produces an annual ESG report. It may be even higher at this point. But um, reporting information according to one of the ESG frameworks, whether it's SASB, GRI, or another, 
um, is become quite standard for public companies. Now, what we've written about in our trends list is that reporting is driven strategy, but we're seeing a change where strategy is starting to drive reporting. Mm -hmm. So now that you are companies are disclosing this information and there is a lot more awareness throughout the organization. And we're not just talking about board level and C-suite. There's awareness within middle management and certainly um, at you know, beginning stages of employees that are coming in and they're at the early stages of their careers, lower rungs uh, of, the, of the firm. There's a lot more awareness of ESG and sustainability issues more broadly. And now because you've reported information, you have a benchmark and you've put a benchmark out there into the world and stakeholders can see that. So that then sort of changes where board C-suite starts to look at that information. They're getting feedback. They're getting questions asked about it. And they then start to craft strategy, business strategy around improving performance on ESG issues, on material ESG issues. So that's one idea, right? So one answer to your question around, you know, where does it begin? In some ways it begins, um, you know, what we're starting to see is that strategy is starting to drive reporting rather than reporting driving strategy, which is right. important. We, we do see on the investor side, so that's the corporate side, on the investor side, and we work, you know, um, a, a big part of our business is working with asset owners and asset managers. When they approach us about advancing ESG maturity at their organization, we always start the mandate by looking at their current state of ESG integration. And our idea is we can't get you to where you want to be if we don't know where you are today. And so we have to understand where you are today, understand what your goals are, create a plan, and then get you to your goals. So it begins with essentially a current state assessment. And we've developed a tool, the SG Maturity Assessment Tool, that does a current state assessment for our asset owner and asset manager clients across different asset classes. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's at the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a current state assessment for, for investors and for corporates. You know, we're starting to see a flip from um, you know, where it starts with strategy, but uh, likely they've already done some ESG work. Okay, great. Well, Anuj, uh, thanks for taking so much time out of your busy schedule today. And let's let our Sustainable Finance po Podcast listeners learn how to get in touch with Close Group Consulting's design and integration process and mandates uh, through contact information that you can give us and how can they reach out to you about the topics that we've discussed on today's program. Yeah, thanks. So number one, thanks for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And yes. uh, I'm a big fan of your uh, podcast. And um, it's, it's great to be on with you today. Um, closegroupconsulting.com on our website, we'll have all our information about um, our firm, our service offerings, our product offerings, the top 10 list is, is also there. Um, and again, I think for many of your listeners, they're probably well aware that LinkedIn um, and LinkedIn feeds is a, is a primary source of information for those of us in the ESG and sustainability field. So I encourage anyone that's interested in learning more about our firm, our thoughts um, to connect with us on LinkedIn, um, myself and, and my partner, Tamara Close, and uh, we'll, we share a lot of our, our insights uh, in our LinkedIn feeds. Okay, great. Well, thanks again, Anuj Shah, the head of ESG Strategy Advisory with Close Group Consulting. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. 
I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. 